Welcome to the Berkeley Innovation Podcast. This series is brought to you by the Satarja Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology, SCET, on the thriving campus of the University of California, Berkeley. Hello, friends. This is Stephen Torres, your host on this journey of entrepreneurial innovation and technology leadership. On this episode, we're joined by a very special guest, Iklak Sidhu, Chief Scientist and Founding Director of the Satarja Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology, also the IEOR Emerging Area Professor. He's a world-class expert in real-life technology innovation and leadership. He invented the technology used in Skype and other internet communications with over 75 patents. He's academically trained, yet highly focused on application. Dr. Sidhu developed the DataX Lab course and framework for rapid implementation of digital transformation. He serves on many advisory boards and created the entrepreneurship and technology focus areas at the number one university in the world, Berkeley. He was recently awarded the 2018 Major Education Innovation Award by the IEEE Educational Activities Board for his contributions in entrepreneurship, pedagogy, and innovative teaching methods. It really is a pleasure to have him on this episode. So, Wicklock, thank you for joining us. Really a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, Let's start off. Give us a little history of SCET, the Satarja Center, how it all got started. All right, great. Thanks. Um, uh, great to be here on your uh, podcast and uh, the center, how it started. So uh, 2005 is when the center got started, and it started really from pretty humble beginnings. It was just one room and one person, and actually that would be me. And, um, you know, what happened when we started was that uh, the College of Engineering and and the advisory board of the College of Engineering mm -hmm. up till that point had been requesting the dean and the college and kind of guiding um, the whole institution that engineering should be broader, that mm -hmm. it shouldn't be only um, solving a uh, technical problem. You know, the question is, uh, should engineers not be involved in understanding why that is the problem going earlier in the in the process of what is the innovation to to be created and overall should it not go into even leading and managing whatever the innovation is that would be created so it's basically a request for interdisciplinary for multidisciplinary for innovation for entrepreneurship for all those things to broaden what would be the engineering education interesting and um, so with that kind of input it was uh, Richard Newton, the dean at that time in 2005, who thought that an entrepreneurship center would make a lot of sense and it would be kind of a starting point for all of these activities that would happen 
uh, within the College of Engineering, you know, towards that broadening um, kind of mission. Do you know what it was like on campus, um, entrepreneurship at that time? Yeah, I, it, entrepreneurship was really a different thing at that time. Uh, people used to start companies, and by people, I mean a faculty used to start companies, but it was something that they did secretly and in private. So uh -huh. Berkeley always had a lot of innovation output, but um, so many of the ventures that faculty were involved with were not as publicized. It was kind of a, things that people are doing on their own um, and kind of uh, separate from what they're supposed to be doing as part of being the university. Uh, was that intentional or was that just something that happened by default as a legacy at the university here? Uh, I don't know intentional or not. I think there, there was a, a culture uh, maybe across the campus that was a, you know, a very socially oriented culture and possibly a government university perspective that if a person is working on a company, then they're not working on whatever is their job. It's later on that this whole thing changed. It really mm -hmm. turned upside down. If you look at the university today, you've got the president of the entire 10 campus system saying entrepreneurship is one of the key drivers of the whole university system. Right. And in fact, many studies have come out, uh, one of which that I know particularly says that those faculty who start companies and are involved with new ventures are actually more productive even as researchers. They mm -hmm. have more publications and um, they have more impact in all kinds of other ways. So definitely the whole, there's a huge shift that's happened during mm -hmm. this course of time. But at that time, when we first started, there were uh, a much smaller group of people that understood the value of entrepreneurship and maybe this um, entrepreneurial innovation and how it should be part of research and how it should be part of academics. One person who really did understand that was Richard Newton. And we were fortunate to have him as dean at that time because um, he had not only been a world-class academic, as in he was in the electrical engineering department, he was the head of the department at one time, he had become the dean. So like he had a great track record. But in parallel to all of that, he had started two companies, one of which is Synopsys, which is a major corporation that exists today. And then uh, he was um, an investor and he was a limited partner in, um, in Mayfield, the venture fund, and in, then later in another venture fund. And he was very well integrated into the Silicon Valley entrepreneurial community. And he understood both sides, the academic side, and he understood the venture and entrepreneurship side. <clears throat> that tends to be rare in academia. You, you don't necessarily see that a lot. Uh, it's true. I think he was exemplary. And, you know, very few people can reach that level in both categories. I will say that, you know, most universities are similar in this category, which is, 95, 97%, depending on where you go, a faculty. Um, thinking about new ventures is not their primary objective. Um, they're researchers, right. and uh, they're, they're measured on and they're focused on different things. And there's a few, um, you know, this 2 to 5%, and it doesn't matter if you're at Stanford or Berkeley or MIT or, you know, any university around the world, there is this percentage that are interested in both. 
and and in fact those few that are are very prolific they don't just start one company they start another one and then their research leads to another one and another one and surprisingly all of their students, maybe not all, but you know, many of their students then become entrepreneurs as well. I mean, they really go, grow up in a research environment that is oriented towards starting ventures, and they learn the behaviors and the techniques. They get it directly from the faculty. So um, these few faculty who are entrepreneurial in this way, they pass along entrepreneurial behaviors and mindsets even while they're um, teaching their students on, on research topics. So, And that's uh, obviously something you brought to the table as well. Uh, I'm curious, what, what brought you then to Berkeley? Did you see this? Was it talking to Richard? What was it that attracted you here in the first place? Yeah, I was definitely recruited um, by Richard Newton because he had a vision that we had uh, to have a program like mm -hmm. this. Uh, my own background is that um, I, had, um, I had done my PhD um, in electrical engineering and I had gone uh, back into industry for you know, close to 10 years or approximately 10 years. And I had a very successful uh, career, pr prolific career in industry. I was um, three comms inventor of the year. I had, um, I think by now I have some 75 patents in various areas from networking and communications and, and so forth. And, um, and I had also uh, been um, part of the executive team of a new venture and uh, you know grew that venture and went through the entire process of you know um, building it and at that point um, I made a switch and I actually went back into academics and I went to uh, University of Illinois as a visiting professor first and there coincidentally um, half of my job became to grow and manage something called a technology entrepreneurship center, something very similar to what hmm. was um, going to be developed at Berkeley. And the logic, uh, my logic was that after all the experiences that I had had in industry, very real experiences of building businesses, um, I was aware of at least some gaps uh, that um, I didn't learn in school and I learned them in practice, in, hmm. in what you'll some softly consider the real world. And I thought, well, okay, if I go back into academics, I could make this full circle. I could fill those gaps. I could bring back what I thought wasn't being taught so that the education, the completeness of the education could start earlier and that people could be more prolific or more capable as, as they got out with this broader version of education. And, uh, and that program in Illinois, um, I grew it and ran it for three years, at which time Richard Newton found me um, there. And he said, well, if you can grow a program successfully like this in Illinois, just imagine what you could do if you were in the Bay Area and at UC Berkeley. And that logic made a certain amount of sense to me, as well as him. Mm -hmm. And um, that was basically how I ended up here. Uh, and, and part of, you know, that, the full story is just basically, I wanted to bring what I had learned 
um, and the gaps that were filled, the, those things that I had learned in industry, back into academics. And that was really my, my primary motivator. Was there any specifics? Why Berkeley? Uh, why Berkeley? Um, I think at the time, uh, this idea of adding, um, at the time, this idea of adding entrepreneurship, innovation, broader skills into engineering, it was starting to emerge or starting to happen across the top engineering universities in U.S. and then also a little bit later around the rest of the world. And, um, and I could see it at one or two institutions, and, and it was just the right timing with Berkeley because their advisory board had been asking for this and they didn't have such a program yet. And so um, you could call it serendipity or, you know, was it fate? Was it just going to happen? I don't know. But um, the timing was right. And 2005, that's how I ended up here. Gotcha. And now when you first came in, what was it like building this center? Because the curriculum didn't exist. The whole BMOE that we know now wasn't there. And that was kind of putting it all together. So, so tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So when we first started the center, uh, there were two components in starting the center. One of them was that I, um, advisory board was created and it had um, great people in it and uh, that included um, John Bergstone for example who really pulled that advisory board together and was teaching in the very original uh, courses of the center. I remember um, him the, well. Yes, the um, really the first uh, of the entrepreneurship classes that was offered and um, but it, but it had, you know, others uh, on that board, and it was a very well-connected board. So, um, you know, Michael Marks, who was the CEO of Flextronics, and Jim Davidson, who was co-founder of Silver Lake, the uh, private equity firm, and other people, both from the college as well as in the industry, and um, this was necessary. Like we needed the advisory board to be able to connect to all the rest of Silicon Valley and to have this flow of people and information. Mm -hmm. The second component was where we started with the curriculum. And we just mentioned John. John had been a product of Harvard, Harvard's business school, and he brought with him the philosophy of um, Harvard's entrepreneurship program. And so originally when we offered the classes, we did them as um, Harvard case type of material. So we built the curriculum out of not our own materials, but out of the materials that were available to us. But we could do one thing, mostly because of the advisory board, uh, and that was, and, and also because of our location, and that was that we could bring the people who were in those cases live into the classroom. So if it was, for example, the case on Flextronics, Michael Marks, who was the CEO of Flextronics, who happened to be on our advisory board, could actually come and be live in the class and he could speak against the case. He could say, this part is true, this part's not exactly right, and let me tell you what's really going on. And all of that type of discussion, it was just fantastic, actually. And 
And really um, cutting edge in engineering because engineering courses didn't typically have this, right? You'd have those maybe in business, but for engineers to actually be exposed to this pedagogy was really unique. It was an amazing experience. Um, it's what drove our curriculum numbers to go from 50 to 700 in the matter of a couple of years, bringing these very real people in. You know, they're all such unique people because they are entrepreneurs. Right. And... Um, and it's not just the logical part of what they can tell you because that's in the case, but the way they see the world, their behaviors, how they react to things, what patterns they notice, those things are coming from them and they're not coming from the case. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole nother level of information that we realized was going on when we were inviting these people, not to mention students who would sit in the class and say, oh, I just watched uh, the CEO of Flextronics in class today. If they happened to go interview at Flextronics, they could literally say, oh, I was talking to the CEO. Right. And, <laughs> you know, it's a, um, you know, complete new uh, um, reality, uh, you right. know, for them. So, uh, but getting back to um, the uh, speakers and what they were adding. So, so after a while, what we realized was that um, that, but the Harvard case was good, but what the speakers were bringing was even better and that maybe we didn't even need the Harvard case. And we started to think, what is it that's so interesting about these speakers? And um, we finally ended up writing a paper called Berkeley Method of Entrepreneurship, which listed what we believed were characteristics of entrepreneurs and innovators. And... Um, and what we then started to do was we still, and, and even today, we, we use cases mm -hmm. in our classes and we invite speakers still in our classes. But what we realize is that these behaviors and the mindset that they were bringing, we could first identify what it is and then we could find ways to transfer those things into students. And that became the hallmark or the core of what is Berkeley Method of Entrepreneurship today. It's a way that a student can, uh, or a team of students, goes through a journey during a semester while they work on their project. That's you know called in-situation. While they're in that situation, they are self-reflecting on what is going right and wrong on multiple levels, including their own personal nature to the strategy of the company, to the way that communication is being done. And, this, and in this self-reflective or inductive process of learning, they are growing and their company is growing. And they are picking up and absorbing the entrepreneurial or innovative behaviors in that journey or in that process. So... Um, this it was a change that we started um, probably, you know, three or four years mm -hmm. into the original uh, curriculum. And over time, uh, we employ that across more and more, you know, a wide number of our course types, but most strongly in what is called the Challenge Labs, a particular segment of courses where students pursue a entrepreneurial opportunity 
And in that process, they pick up these mindsets and behaviors. And certainly, Berkeley Method of Entrepreneurship is taught there. It's, of course, also taught in our Berkeley Method of Entrepreneurship Boot Camp, which is a one-week experience mm-hmm. at the beginning of each semester. And it's taught, a variation of it is even taught to executives um, from Google, Yahoo, Network Appliances, Samsung, Cisco, Apple, so forth, that attend our executive programs. We actually call it something slightly different. We call it Berkeley Method of Innovation Leadership. That is, it's not exactly the same. There's some differences when you're in an organization mm-hmm. and not in a group of just uh, three or four people and un- unbound by the rest of the rules of the company. But this method of developing people as part of the education, uh, this is carried through with us um, widely across all of our programs. It really makes um, our programs unique mm-hmm. uh, and and defines how we teach entrepreneurship and innovation today. When you start looking at the landscape, you know, obviously a lot of universities teach entrepreneurship. Um, could you speak to the, you know, and you mentioned this when you talked about the difference between a startup and maybe working in innovation. Could you share with us what are those, um, you know, and I, we don't want to get into the whole, you know, teaching methodology, but what are the, the key differentiators that those executives, that these companies, when they send someone to us, what are they looking for them to learn? Because you would think that a company, say Google or Facebook, they know everything, right? There's this perception that, well, Google, they're the best out there or um, Cisco or Intel, you know, they've had this history, they know what to do. So what are they gleaning through this method that they wouldn't have otherwise just in industry? Okay, so there's a couple layers to what happens in one of our executive programs, for example, in the ELPP or Engineering Leadership Professional Mm -hmm. Program. And it's exactly the type of program that you're talking about where Google and Facebook and Apple have all sent people and and, and do send people. So um, the first is uh, this is a version of broadening MBA-like materials that an engineering leader is not likely to take um, and not likely to have had in another place. So so, um, if they're not going to invest in a full MBA and they've grown up in a technical organization, these are just things that are very helpful to them for them to know as they rise up in their positions. Mm. And there's not another kind of more effective uh, and tuned way that is targeted for the context of engineering for, for them to get these things. So uh, that includes things like technology strategy, um, marketing and product management topics, uh, operations, uh, leadership, personal development, uh, topics relating to communication. Those are the types of things that at a logical level, at a content level, are, are covered in a course like this. At another level, uh, there is um, what the what the job requires from the person and basically what the company needs the person to do. But there's also the idea of career development mm. or personal development for the person who's in it. So for them to understand that 
the things that made them successful up till today are not necessarily the things that are going to make them successful next. Right. And um, you can first go through the thought process of what is it that you actually want? And if you want to do exactly what you've been doing, you could even regress and go back to when you were an engineer working on a project just by yourself and without other teams and people coordinating with you. And perhaps those skills that got you successful there would be fine. But as you rise up and as you aspire to do new things, there's other capabilities. And in fact, there's behaviors and ways of seeing the world and mindset that now are necessary. It's not just the logical part, but it's even how you will behave and act and, um, and see the world in order to pursue those opportunities and to be successful in those, those other opportunities. Right. So to understand what those are and how to develop them as people, it's a career development process of a sort. Um, yeah, well, the, I think that's really fascinating because I think those are all things, you know, if you just look at the headlines sometimes, there are skills somehow that are not being imparted in our leadership whether it be in tech or you know all types of other industry and to have a program that actually does that right that can impart those skills that that has that kind of entrepreneurial journey if you will as well as that leadership journey intertwined i think that's where you get a lot of magic happening at least from what i've observed yeah so i've seen this um we, we've been doing this program for a number of years and i've seen a number of uh, paths and versions of how this all works. Uh, one thing that I'll say is that we have to do it first from a logical and content viewpoint and then later from a behavioral point of view. In other words, if we start with soft skills, people say, oh, this is a very soft class. This, this material is not related to what I'm doing every day. So we usually start with things that are in Harvard cases. We start with frameworks. We start with strategy topics. And, and they start to realize, okay, there's things that I've never thought about. There's ways to analyze these things. And it, it feeds the logical part of what they want from the program. And then um, there's a point where they say, oh, I think I understand which direction I should go on a project, or I think I understand what would be good for the company. And then they realize the rest of this is not about what they know. The rest of this is whether other people who work with them will go along in that same direction. And then all of a sudden, these softer skills become incredibly important. Right. And so you basically transition from what we'll call the more harder skills to the softer skills and you do it at the right timing and then you can really put these things together right let me tell you a little story um and i've seen this from um all kinds of very high profile companies like facebook and google and so forth so um usually when companies are very successful and they're in that early stage of being successful they have this belief that they know everything right that there's nothing that they could possibly learn from anyone else because they are at the leading edge of whatever they're doing with the technology. And um, and so, you know, sometimes students come in and I can see this 
this attitude right on their face. They want to express how great the things they're doing are. And after a little while, what I notice after about three or four weeks into the class, after we bring in experienced executives and we connect it into the cases, they start to realize that the same problems they're having right now Mm -hmm. are the problems that these executives have faced 10 years ago and 20 years ago and even 30 years ago. (laughs) And that, oh my goodness, um, you know, the world was not invented today. (laughs) And that they're suffering and about to go into all the problems that every other company ever went into and that, wow, this is really important to understand right. if you want to do well and navigate through these things. Another variation of this, I had one student, um, and he was from Facebook. He was at Facebook at the time. And he said, I've listened to the suggestions that you've made in terms of innovation and starting new projects and things like that. And he says, I'll tell you that it's really against my natural way of working Um, and like I would normally never do this but I've had about five projects and they get to a certain stage and then they don't go any further so I thought one time against my own judgment I'm gonna try your approach Mm -hmm. and uh, my approach was uh, basically to share the information a little bit earlier than he was normally used to sharing it. Mm -hmm. And so what he said was he wrote some code that was going to be the beginning of a certain project and following this advice, which he thought would not work at all, but he did it anyway just because somebody in the class, me, told him that, that, you know, this would be a good approach. He put a version of that code on a bulletin board where other people could get access to it and see what he was doing relatively early. And he got messages back like, yeah, this is not very helpful. It doesn't work in all of these ways. It's not solving the problem that we need solved. However, there was one comment that said, you know, I do know somebody that could actually use this. And it's a different group of people and for a different purpose. And you should um, see what they say. So then he moved his code to a different location where those that new target segment would be. Mm-hmm. And those people started to give him all kinds of constructive feedback. Oh, this is really good, but it needs this and it needs that. And he just started making these changes. And he comes back and he tells me, this is the first time that I've had my project get so much farther off the ground and I'm getting all of this visibility and attention. And basically I'm having a, a success like I've never had before. Uh-huh. And so even at the Facebooks and Googles, one and and all the other companies and apples and everywhere where you think of them as um, the leading edge of innovation and they are I'm not taking anything away from them they've right. done some great things but even there uh, they're full of people that uh, can learn from past history and can learn from the behaviors of really good entrepreneurs Absolutely. and it makes their it makes their projects more successful. So that's why they send people. Right. And that ties directly into 
kind of the teaching methodology of our labs as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of exciting things happening with the SCET labs. I'm curious, what are some of the exciting things in your view right now that are happening in those labs? What are they? What's kind of going on there? Could, could you share okay, some Okay, yeah, there's a couple things that have been coming together. So one thing is that, um, that about three years ago, I thought it was time to refactor a data science class, particularly a technical class where the where what you could build or develop from it has a lot of impact. Hmm. You know, it's an emerging um, technology area that is data, um, artificial intelligence, uh, and uh, um, machine learning, machine learning, so forth. All all of those things are wrapped up in in this idea, and so. Um, I thought, well, what would be an ideal class that, you know, I would like to take? If I could start over and, you know, go to a data science slash machine learning type of class, what would I want to take? And so I would want it to be very real, very hands-on and practical, that you could build whatever mm -hmm. in the field you wanted. It would have all the current tools, whether, you know, it's the ones that are used at Google or the ones that are used at any startup company, definitely open-ended in terms of the project and what I could make, but it wouldn't be missing the theory. And, you know, you would be able to learn the relevant math and the foundations that would go with that. So I put these things together, and in fact, I refactored the order of the theory to make it all relative to whether you needed to know it to do the project or to use the tools. And so sometimes there's a foundational theory, but you don't directly need to know it. I could wait on that, or maybe I won't have it at all. And uh, the ones that are more connected and more likely to be used mm -hmm. in getting your project done, I put those earlier. So this became became something like a hacker's guide to data science and AI and ML and so forth. Uh, and the enrollment on this class uh, uh, popularity overall has been tremendous. Uh, we're seeing about 80% increase in enrollment every semester now for four semesters. Right. It was 55, then 90, then 135. Now we're um, at around 200, and cumulatively we've had 550 students through this semester that have taken it. So there's a lot of momentum because all of these students are learning a very valuable skill. It's a hard skill. They're coming up a steep learning curve, but we found a way that they can learn it from an implementation point of view. All of that is feeding what we're doing with our laboratories. So um, now we have, um, well, technically we have three laboratories and, and more are emerging. So uh, we have a data lab, and you can see how the students that we're teaching in the Data X course uh, the best of them are contributing to what happens in the data lab. We're also um, uh, running a, a lab in the blockchain area, and we have one on um, meat alternatives because that's a global sustainability challenge. And we are uh, looking into, uh, and I'm sure you'll hear more about all the activity around sports tech, uh, and there's other areas as well that are kind of on the horizon for future. But the... Um, the so the course that you're talking about is Data X, right? Yeah, that, that's the that's big right. course. Yeah, the, the big course is called Data X. The, the technical name in the university, the official name in the university is, um, a, is uh, Applied Data Science 
with venture applications. It's a really long yeah. uh, <laughs> name. Uh, and uh, when I originally uh, created it, I wanted it to be called Data X. While it wasn't suitable in an academic sense to write <laughs> on the books for the official name of the class, informally that is what it's known right. as and and people tend to still refer to it that way and are these all graduate students or is this open to undergrads who are technically savvy who who typically takes this um it is about 60 percent undergraduate wow. and 40 percent uh um graduate students um of the graduate students we have a lot of master's students mm -hmm. and some phd students so really all kinds of people all kinds of students take this class there's there's a reason why um, so if you think about the logic we went from the class to a lab and in fact we have multiple labs the labs and the classes they really interact um, uh, in, in an important way we picked lab areas which are not going to go away in one year or two year data science and and artificial intelligence and machine learning that's right. not about to go away um, blockchain, while there's a lot of hype, there's also a lot of actual progress going on. And while it needs to be filtered where where we are in reality, that is not going to go away. Uh, the global sustainability challenges relating to food are not going away. All of these things create industries. They don't just create one company. It's not just one customer that had one question, but they all enable industries to grow. And with the challenge labs, we wanted to be able to have questions that are objectives in the challenges that were related to industry growth or or societal impact. And mm. um, and so when we have a lab, um, we we are able to seed talent and topics into the challenge labs and those challenge labs educate students and the best of those students and the best of those projects can end up back in the labs as well. So they're symbiotic with each other. I see. It makes the strategy uh, and it makes our um, choice of challenges that lead to companies and emerging new industries systematic. I see. So that, that leads me then to a question. So where does this all go? What, what's kind of the long-term objective of SCET and uh, everything that you're doing with these pedagogical ways and the classes and so forth. What, what's that long-term objective? Yeah, okay. So um, our, our fundamental mission here is, empower, is to empower people to change the world, students and all of the people that we work with. And uh, we've, we've had a very good track record, and there's a lot of companies that have come from here. We tend to say it all starts here. There's a lot that has started here, right. whether that's the Master of Engineering program, whether that's the early incubation that led to Skydeck, whether that's uh, really all kinds of programs, and then all of the companies, whether it's uh, GoGoVan or companies that have recently been acquired into Facebook or whoever, all of these companies um, have also started here. So we have this track record of empowering students and giving them the skills that they need to uh, make impact in the world. And where will we go from here? Um, I think one thing that I've been um, trying to figure out is, is there a space that is not 
pure engineering and a space that is not pure business, but something that is uniquely in the middle of those two. Mm-hmm. And this is a, it's an perhaps an academic area of its own, and it is a, um, and and it's a skill and a capability that um, virtually every company organization around the world needs. Um, they have people who are pure engineers. They have people who are um, pure executives and and business leaders. But at the edge of innovation there's other combinations and how those fit into all these different jobs in companies that are not only high-tech companies but you know whether you're in construction or you make carpets or whatever there's a part of every company now that is at the edge of technology and at the edge of the of their actual business so Hmm. that is one thing that we're pursuing what is this middle space it's like entrepreneurship or something like that right that the hard combination. to name it hard to name it at this stage but there's something between management and technology slash engineering and uh, we seem to somewhat naturally have fallen in, into that area and i think we're going to continue to empower people uh, you know, in this way. I think the other thing that, you know, in terms of growth uh, threads uh, for the center, uh, I'll say besides doing kind of more of good work that we've been doing, is um, I think uh, I think uh, the nature of our faculty, um, the people who teach these classes, having this unique mix of uh, academic uh, experience and background with uh, industry orientation and professional orientation, um, it leads to a segment of people that bring a different perspective um, into um, into education overall. And I think mm-hmm. um, we'll see more of that, more of this uh, crossover segment of people um, who are part of our Uh, teaching capability but can I answer actually there's one other big thing where I think we're going and that is um, the way that we can engage industry projects for the purpose of both education and research um, now that we are um, doing what we're doing with both labs and education uh, that capability is really growing and, uh, and I think we're going to do a lot more there. And let me just clarify that uh, to, to get the understanding of it. So for a long time, we've been teaching people how to change their mindset and behavior mm-hmm. to be ready for entrepreneurship and innovation. And we have 1,500 students a year that come through our classes and we do this. So they take their original skills, but now they have this new mindset and behavior. And a lot of entrepreneurship is that kind of mindset and behavior plus really good team formation, really good mixing of the right people. You take that and you intersect it with our interest in these technical emerging areas, whether that's data, AI, um, uh, blockchain, so forth, or whether it's uh, what's happening in terms of industry changes in the world, and that can be sports tech or 
whatever um, segment is is being affected and, and why it's being affected, you know, industry orientation. But you take this ability to do really high quality team formation with experts that have you know knowledge um, and the and this you know right mindset, this team formation with the right mindset, and you intersect it with the ability to work with companies in these very specific emerging technology areas. And I think we're going to see, we're already starting to see applied research projects and industry connection that really the whole university, uh, all of academics has never seen before. And there's a lot of promise in our ability to educate students in a way that they've never been educated before and to be a conduit to the rest of the world in a way that academics has not really been connected before. So I think there's really something powerful there. Wow, that's awesome. If someone wants to engage with the center, what's the best way for them to reach out to the center or be engaged? I would say um, come to our website, uh, take a look at our um, how to connect to our mailing list because there's a lot that goes on and you'll at least get updated who's coming, what new projects are we doing. Uh, and then from the center, depending on who you are, uh, in if you're interested in our engineering leadership program or our, uh, executive types of programs, there's a part of the site that lets you see what's going on there. If you're a student, definitely take a look at our curriculum from an industry perspective, contact us if there's things in these areas, data, AI, uh, digital transformation. If you're interested in um, being, being part of the solution within your own company and connecting with resources at Berkeley, uh, you can contact, contact us for, for that as well. Right. We even have researchers from all over the world coming and doing things. So. Absolutely. Great. That's part of our job of uh, connecting to the whole rest of the world. And that website is scet.berkeley.edu, right? Exactly. Okay, so how about what is a song that you've been listening to lately that relates? Do I really have to answer this? Yes. Oh, my God. Um, a song that I've been listening to lately. Sure. Uh, trying, I'll think that's the last song that I listened to. The problem is I listen to NPR on the way over oh, here. Yeah. So that's not helping me with songs. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, this is not the answer that you're thinking of. But frankly, um, I am hearing more Bollywood songs okay. than English songs these days because my kids all... Uh, listen to and like to hear uh, Bollywood and Indian music songs, uh, you know, connected with the movies and, and just otherwise and dance things. So I'm going to just leave it as a category. Yeah, is uh, there a song? I'm curious. So I, I don't listen to Bollywood songs. So is there a Bollywood song out there that I should listen to? What's a good one? <laughs> I, I don't. I'm not. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm curious. Have one. It, it um, has to be a good one. Is there a good one? I don't know. Um, I, I can tell you that my kids like um, uh, things by uh, Guru Randava. Guru Randava, okay. Yeah, and, um, and then, you know, there's a whole sequence of songs that come from movies. If you, if you are aware of Bollywood, um, you can go back to uh, Mahuna or you can go to 
well, you could go to Namaste London or you could go to, uh, there's a lot of um, kind of very popular um, uh, and very watchable, even from a Western point of view, uh-huh. uh, Bollywood movies. And everyone has, you know, every one of those has like six songs in it. And each one of them will have at least one like hit. So there's, there's a lot of them. Awesome. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll have to check them out. Iqlaq, thank you right. so much for joining us on the podcast. Have thank a good you. day. Bye-bye. Thank you.